Hello, everybody. This is Vincent Horn, your Faithful Buddhist Geeks podcast host. And I am um, especially excited. I think I'm always delighted to be speaking to someone on this show. It's always fun. But today I'm especially delighted to be speaking to one of my dear teachers. And I would call her a friend as well, uh, Trudy Goodman. Trudy, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us on Buddhist Geeks to explore this Meditating on Psychedelics series and also to do it while you have uh, a pretty bad case of poison oak, I understand. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here with you, Vince. Yeah, thanks for persevering in the face of strong, uh, unpleasant sensations. Yes, exactly. So, okay, so we have had a, we had a really... Uh, interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago about what we would talk about on the series. And I have some ideas for what I wanted to zoom in more um, and explore with you today. But I wanted to start by asking if you could share a bit about your personal experience using psychedelics. And I remember you sharing a little bit, like a little story with me one time when I was on retreat with you in an interview. And it had something to do with psilocybin. Um, but beyond that, I really don't know a whole lot about what your early days of psychedelic experimentation were like, what you kind of learned from that period of time, like how it impacted you as a Dharma practitioner. Just curious to hear um, you know, a bit of the like personal story uh, uh, of your relationship to psychedelics. Sure. Um, you know, I was interested in consciousness always. And I think starting probably as a teenager. And when I went to college in 1962, and that was early, even for the, you know, the psychedelics and everything, the summer of love wasn't until quite a bit later. And I did have an experience in my freshman year. I was very young. I mean, maybe I think I went when I was 17 and it started, I think it was just marijuana, but I was so you know, we were kids, we got stoned and went skinny dipping or something. But um, I remember the state that I was in and being just fascinated with how peaceful and expanded it was. And I think that began my interest in the psychedelics, which were not available. There wasn't really anything available to us in college at that time. But when my brother started college a few years later, probably around uh, 66, 65, you know, anyway, that was when it was beginning. And, um, my brother, I'm telling this part first because it has to do with how I used them. Uh, my brother also was just taking them, you know, with kids in college and no preparation, no careful setting, anything like that. And I think the fifth time he took LSD, he was not able to come down. And it precipitated a psychotic break. And he was in mental hospitals and it was a very terrible time. And so that delayed my willingness to experiment. Yeah, wow. It was very, it's really, it, it sort of kicked him into, um, I would say, a long time of mental illness because the medications that were available then, back then, uh, he wasn't correctly diagnosed. It, it, what it triggered is bipolar disorder in him. And once he was medicated, he's been fine. But 
it was really 10 years almost before that got under control. So that was very tragic and frightening for our family. And I also mention it because uh, I am going to make a pitch for care and preparation and setting Hmm. um, in using them. And responsible use of psychedelics, I think, uh, has to include that kind of care. But, uh, you know, being, being young, I had to try. I just waited probably a few years until the early 70s. And, um, and also, I was a single mom at that time, very young. So I had to carefully arrange to be able to try this out. And I, I wanted to do it. I had wanted to do it for years because I hadn't yet encountered meditation practice. And I had tried in so many ways to study consciousness. I had gone even to study with um, a developmental psychologist named Jean Piaget, who had an institute in Geneva where he taught developmental psychology about the origins of intelligence and how we know things. And I thought, he will have the secret. So I enrolled in that institute and I took all kinds of classes, including his. And I realized what he's studying is not at all what I'm interested in. I mean, developmental psychology is interesting to me as a psychologist and certainly helped me in my work. But I wanted to understand about consciousness. And I didn't yet know that nobody understood really about what consciousness is. And so, I had to get a babysitter, I had to prepare, and I think that also helped me have a better experience. And the first time that I took LSD was uh, in 1971, and that first trip, uh, we were in a park, and I remember looking at the grass and watching my body disappear from you know feet, legs, <laughs> watching my body disappear. And in one way, it was thrilling in another way, I thought, I'm going to go crazy like my brother. Mm. And so that first experience, there were these sort of parallel tracks. And one was watching the city. I was in Boston, watching the city around me completely collapse and dissolve and then reform and appear again. And just seeing this activity of impermanence telescoped into, you know, these moments, whereas processes like that would obviously take millennia, usually, or at least centuries. And, mm. and then also this thread of fear, um, I'll never come down again, because that was what happened to Jonathan. So that was my first experience. But the things I had seen, the lack of solidity or substantiality of anything were so stunning and different and odd to me that I became more curious. And so I didn't use LSD a lot, but I can't count how many times, but maybe even 10 altogether. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't a lot. I don't know exactly. But I think the story that you probably remember and was the culmination of those experiences for me mm-hmm. was the one where I was on Cape Cod with my then boyfriend, Danny Joy, and we were um, living in a communal situation. So I had childcare and it was late at night and we were walking up a hill and there was a full moon 
we were holding hands. It was just a very sweet walk. But because I was also very stoned, I had an experience. I remember looking at the moon and having an experience of the utter perfection of everything. It was so powerful, Vince, and everything. And then a thought appeared, as (laughs) thoughts do, (laughs) after or during or later. But um, the thought came to me, this is the nature of mind. Why I didn't have those words then. I don't I think I thought this is my birthright, like to have this experience. This is who we deeply are. I just knew it. And I thought, why do I have to be stoned to have this experience? This should be an experience that we can just have. We're human beings. We have this capacity. So I had that thought while I was tripping, and that trip started me really searching for understanding there must be people who know about this there must be people who can find other ways to access this i began to read books i started to visit all the um you know swamis who would come to town and i would go listen and they would say eat artichokes and say so ha on your breath and i was just like no i don't like to be told what to do <laughs> i'm not going to do that I didn't click with any of them. And then um, Larry Rosenberg had discovered uh, what turned out to be my first teacher, uh, De Sansonin, the Korean Zen master. And he and um, John Kabat-Zinn were my very close friends. John wasn't Kabat-Zinn then. He was Johnny Cabot. And uh, we all went to see Sansonin and hear him speak. And he was not able to speak English so clearly. He had kind of pigeon English, and he was saying things like, the grass is green, the sky is blue, the wall is white, the floor is brown. Really simple things, but I looked into his eyes, and I thought, he knows what I want to know. I could see it. Mm. And in this, he was saying these very simple things, and I was listening to him, and just tears started coming down my face. I, you know, it clearly was not the content of what he was saying; it was the the simple truth of it. And so I began my uh, meditation practice in that context of Korean Zen, and ordained as a lay Zen Buddhist. Actually, with John, we did that together at the same time. Larry was Larry hmm. was ahead of us. He was a month ahead of us. We, there would be a, <laughs> a lifetime. There would be yeah, yeah, exactly. At that age, we would there would be a ceremony every month, once a month, where you could um, take Buddhist precepts and um, and become a lay Zen Buddhist. And I still have the scar on my forearm from burning the moksha because the idea is you don't forget. So you get this little piece of, um, it looks like a piece of moss and it's lit and it just burns down and then uh, creates a little burn on your skin. Nothing serious, but it's intense enough that it's a reminder. Mm. I actually have two of them, one from my five precepts and then one when I became a Dharma teacher and took 10. But so that I think is the, that was the link for me between an experience that I had on. 
LSD and then what, which I, I think it just gave me the direction that I needed to find the practice and meet the Dharma. And I had other experiences with psilocybin, you know, eating mushrooms. Um, there was one we used to do MDA. I think now they call it MMDA um, and all kinds of nicknames for it, ecstasy and so forth. Um, and I felt I learned from all of those experiences. And yet the experiences themselves don't exactly help you uh, so much afterwards. I stopped doing them because I didn't like the feeling of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden over and over again, <laughs> which is what it felt like. Um, and at that time, I didn't yet really have a way of, I didn't have any way of sustaining those experiences or in integrating them into my everyday life. But I, I feel I learned a lot about the mind from those journeys, even though in some ways I was taking a risk. I was very fortunate and, you know, obviously didn't have the experience that my brother did. Hmm. And I never tried, I mean, we were, it was a time when people were experimenting with lots of different drugs. And I remember taking one substance that actually scared me because I loved it so much. And I thought, I can understand how people get into trouble with drugs. I really yeah, saw yeah. it. And that was opium. Oh, yeah. And so I never did that again, even though every time I think of it, I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> but I never did that one again and stayed away from mm. hard drugs, too. I was a mom. You know, I had responsibilities. I worked. Um, Thankfully. Yeah. 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 I don't think I would, who knows what would have happened, but I don't think I would have gotten caught, but probably nobody thinks that when they start out. Hmm. Oh, wow. There's so many, there's so many uh, things in what you just said that I want to unpack. Um, one thing that's interesting about your description is that it's, it, it really resonates with a lot of the descriptions I hear of folks um, who are part of your generation and got into Dharma practice that psychedelics were in some ways a doorway for them, maybe even the doorway into exploring um, consciousness and, and wanting to know more and trying to find something that could help sustain or deepen or integrate whatever was glimpsed. Um, obviously, my experience was the opposite, reversed uh, Dharma practice and then psychedelics. Uh -huh. um, so I, 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 there's, there's maybe a whole conversation to be had about how that is interpreted differently um, because I have a I, I don't see psychedelics as a doorway to Dharma uh, because that wasn't my experience. But um, for sure, it seems like generationally, that was the experience of, of your generation, you know, just kind of coming in th through psychedelics and then, and then wanting to explore more. That, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, another thing you touched on with drugs and uh, addiction, which I wanted to talk about as well. And, and I want to add something else, which you just reminded me of when you said that that wasn't your doorway. And I realized that, and, and the fact that I forget it all the time kind of reenacts what it was like at that time. But I did have some powerful experiences that I think fueled my searching. And at the time, I didn't know what to make of them. So I, I think I just tucked them away and kind of forgot them. But they came back to me and 
And I'm just going to briefly mention them because I have talked about them other places. But but the first one was uh, giving birth to Hillary, my daughter, um, just through a combination of odd circumstances that I don't need to go into. I was alone during a lot of my labor with her, which wouldn't even happen today unless you were just, you know, maybe, I don't know. I just can't even imagine the circumstances where that would happen today, but it did happen then. And, and I think because I was so young, I was 21, I knew very little about childbirth. Uh, it wasn't a thing. Birth was just what you did to have a baby in those days. And so I was kind of up against it, not quite knowing what to do with the pain and the experience that I was in. And, and I remember just, I was in a hospital bed, lying in a hospital bed, um, and staring at the white tiles on the wall. And it was twilight, I know, because they turned blue and just had this huge opening. My mind just everything, the hospital room, everything fell away. And I just saw this chain of being that stretched backwards into eternity and forwards into eternity. It was, it was a hugely powerful experience that was born out of my lying there wondering, oh my gosh, did everybody come into the world like this? Is this how, you know, you're standing on a crowded street corner in Manhattan, you look around, everybody was born Oh my God. <laughs> so there was a kind of wonder, wonderment about this that was happening. And then I had that experience. And, and then later I had another very powerful, spontaneous experience when my daughter actually came down with the most virulent form of spinal meningitis. And she was dying in a hospital in Geneva, which is where I had gone to study with Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist I mentioned earlier. And she was in the hospital for two and a half months. And at one point she coded and all these doctors came running and mm. it was so, I, I, it had been going on and on. And I was so, I guess, just stressed. And I don't even know, I can't even analyze. All I know is that I was watching six grownups work on this teeny tiny body, which was my daughter, two years old at that time. And again, just boom, I saw, I saw God. That's what it felt like. And what I saw in that moment was that God was not separate from what was going on, that the compassion, it was just all compassion. They're working on her. Oh, it makes me cry remembering it, actually. Her giving them the opportunity to save her life, me, the mother, it was just all compassion. And and I think that's why later I just was so drawn to Zen practice because the form and emptiness piece was so vividly clear. But those experiences, I didn't have anywhere to put them. And there was nobody, I guess I just thought that's what happens when you have a baby. You see that. Or that's what happens when your child, I mean, that's a horrible experience. Thank God she didn't die. I want everybody to know she's okay. She did lose a lot of her hearing, but she's perfectly fine and has two beautiful children who are my grandchildren and uh, went on to have, you know, a lovely career and everything. So, but I think that I just didn't, there was no, it's very interesting to think just in terms of cognition, but when there's no frame or a point of frame of reference of any kind, the mind just kind of sets it aside and you don't even think about it again. Mm -hmm. 
so I do want to just mention that that did happen before and maybe was why I was so curious. Ah, uh, yeah. Or part of it. I know I was as a teenager, but I was even more so after those experiences. Yes. So I hope that didn't take us too far afield. No, really, really interesting um, to hear. I, I've heard I've heard you share about the experience you had in childbirth. Yeah, um, I yeah. Think, I think I've heard these things, but it's it's sort of interesting to remember, and it's also interesting just to kind of reflect, I guess, on you know what is it that brings us into a more committed engagement with the mystery? Yes, that's a great question, Vince. It's an, I mean, it's certainly an open question in this, in this conversation, because I know there are lots of people, like you say, have these experiences, whether they're psychedelic or, or just life, you yeah. know, life happens. Yeah. And like yeah. you said, they, they put them aside or they just, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't shift the ground underneath them in the same way. Right. And that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. So w- one thing I haven't talked much about in this series is, um, around the topic of addiction and partly because Gaber Mate wasn't available. <laughs> I'd say that kind of half joking. I reached out to him cause he, I just love his writing, um, on addiction and, um, and he has such an interesting background. Um, the realm of the hungry ghosts is something I, I, I really enjoyed reading. I like that book a lot. So compassionate. Yeah, really so compassionate and, um, and still, just heartbreaking, um, you know, to see and to hear how, how deeply and profoundly addiction can undermine lives um, and steal all of the vitality and end lives and end lives. I mean, and, 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 and exactly end lives. And when you shared with your brother's experience, which was like, you know, really bad and, and, and yet could have been even worse. Um, yeah. And so it's like on the one hand, we have these amazing opening, life-affirming, mystical experiences, and then these like destabilizing, um, life-destroying and, you know, uh, yeah. experiences and habits that get formed out of, out of those relationships. And, you know, it's like, like what's, what's the difference between those two, you know, because there, there's a lot of similarities in them um, as well. Well, that's where I was, I feel very fortunate to uh, have recently met um, Roland Griffiths, the mm-hmm. psychopharmacologist who's been able to do research because he was one of, he is one of the leading psychopharmacologists in the nation. He was able to obtain um, permission and grant money to do research with psilocybin at Johns Hopkins. And uh, I was visiting Ramdas and it just was a kind of lucky coincidence that that Roland was coming to actually do a pilgrimage to see Ramdas and mm-hmm. and you know pay homage to him as one of the early researchers mm-hmm. in psychedelics. And I really I, I I was very moved meeting him because Roland is somebody who had has done the science and and some of the only science we have in this country where you know, when Nixon, I mean, for the last 40 years, it's been illegal even to do scientific research right. on any of these substances. Um, so that's really hampered our knowledge, including our knowledge of what's safe and what isn't. And, yes. And he's been 
publishing studies involving healthy volunteers receiving psilocybin. And that's the active ingredient in what many people might know as magic mushrooms. And of course, he carefully selects the people and they are prepared. Then they're given the drug in a very supportive context, two people sitting with them the whole time. What they're discovering is that with that attention to preparation and care and setting, vast majority of people have extremely positive experiences. And if they have scary experiences, they move through them, you know, with support. And when I say positive experiences, experiences the interconnectedness, you know, of unity, of uh, mating God or an emissary of God or the God of your understanding, you know, transcendence of time and space and having the sense that you've encountered and experienced the mystery of consciousness itself. And what I love about him is he really sees this as something that could help our planet. If people, you know, our planet where people aren't taking care of the environment and people are uh, making, having wars with each other, you know, he, he's, he's studying this because he feels that the mystical experiences that people have are life-changing. That's what it's turning out to be. But in terms of your question about, um, you know, they're really looking at how psychedelics might be effective um, with addictions. They've done, you know, they have a pilot study that shows it was effective in overcoming smoking addiction. And I guess 60% of the people treated were still not smoking a year later. Um, They're looking at cocaine dependence. They're looking at treatments for PTSD, OCD, eating disorders, all kinds of addictions. And he did say that around 10% of people felt that if they weren't in that supportive context, they would have maybe put themselves or somebody else at risk of physical harm. Wow. And they did a huge survey study of just 2,000 people and asking them if they ever had a bad experience with uh, psychedelics, uh, or specifically mushrooms, a really small percentage did say that they had enduring psychological problems. But they also suspect that the people who already have psychological disorders would be the ones who would be more sensitive to any negative effects. And I think for my brother, um, I know that my mother's sister had bipolar illness. So it's very possible that he had that vulnerability. But would he have been kicked into you know the actual onset of that illness if he hadn't taken LSD we don't we'll never know mm-hmm. but the probability of having positive and mystical experiences i think should encourage us to look at ways to use these substances safely and wisely and and mitigating the the negative experiences if yeah, possible yeah and screening people um, screening people carefully, but I, but there's no question that when you take a psychedelic, uh, you experience such a shift and it can, I mean, it's abrupt in the sense that it maybe takes an hour or so, but you know, that's not like with a meditation retreat, (laughs) it would take a lot longer than that, um, to access often for most people, such a huge shift in the nature of consciousness. Um, that you actually can look at the mind and see that the way it's usually working 
is only, you know, one frequency, you know, that there are all these other frequencies that we can tune into. But I think the part that's super important and that we talked about a lot that Roland has a recent paper that came out about is that these experiences are not a substitute for meditation because they don't lead to any stability of the states that you encounter, no matter how aware. And so it becomes an experience. And an experience can be helpful in developing knowledge that there are alternate ways of existing in our reality. They can be helpful in encouraging more love in the world and sense of connection, all those things. But they don't become traits. They don't lead to any stability of these understandings. And so Roland himself meditates every single day. We know that there are gene expression changes after only five minutes of meditation. We know that, you know, we have longer telomeres um, when we meditate. I mean, there's all this research that shows lots of benefits of the meditation that we don't yet have for the psychedelics. But the paper that I'm interested in and that I'm referring to, and I'm just going to see if I can find the reference to it for you. It's called Psilocybin Occasioned Mystical Type Experience in Combination with Meditation and Other Spiritual Practices Produces Enduring Positive Changes in psychological functioning, and in trait measures of pro-social, that means, you know, altruistic, um, caring, gen- generative, compassionate um, attitudes and behaviors. And this is from the Journal of Psychopharmacology, mm. just very recently. So to just boil down that long title, basically, meditating can help the mystical experience mm. or the opening that people have on the psychedelics become not just a state, an experience that is after all only a memory, but can help make those insights and awakenings present in our everyday life when we do meditation or other, you know, dedicated spiritual practice. Mm. I mean, it, it, it sort of makes sense that that would be true. Um, looking back at sort of the shamanic traditions that always combined those medicine, those medicines in in the context of a larger training ground, or you know, that's right, the set of set of ritual disciplines. That's right. Um, there's a ceremony. There's a ritual. You go see the curandera. You yes, of course, the shaman. Um, yes. So that's 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 interesting in a way, um, you know, because your generation in particular were exposed to these substances. The context just wasn't there. Wasn't there? No, there was nothing. Yes. Uh, and now it's, it seems like in some ways we're almost having to re rediscover um, the wisdom of the past and, and, and sort of find, find, a, find a new expression for it um, here and now, since of course we're not all going to become shamans or at least, you know, not shamans in the traditional um, sense. So it's interesting to think about meditation and, and psychedelics and the way that, you know, that could be one potential expression of, of, a, of a contemporary way of approaching psychedelics that's, that's affirming. And, you know, I have a friend, a new friend in the last couple of years named John Lockley, who 
He's written a wonderful book called Leopard Warrior. He's a really interesting guy who, he's a white man, South African, who received a calling to become a shaman, but it manifested, I guess, as it also often does, as they call it, twaza, as a severe physical illness. And because of apartheid, he he was never able to go and get help from another, from a shaman who would understand what his illness was. He was sick for, I don't know, six years, eight years, a long time. And because of apartheid, you know, they were a white family. They had black helpers. And one of the helpers said, I know what's wrong with you, but I can't take you to the township. And after Mandela's election, he went to the township and he met a lady, a shaman, respected there. And she burst into tears when she saw him and said, why did it take you so long to get here? So he has received a traditional indigenous training over a period of 13 years. He was taken into the community. And what strikes me about every single thing he does is that there is ritual around it. And that is very lacking in our culture, this sense mm-hmm. of, of ceremony, of ritual, of stepping th- across a threshold into the explicitly sacred world. Mm. And we didn't have anything like that. And in many ways still don't as a culture. Yes. Yes. We're, we're still, still struggling uh, to find that. It seems like. Yeah. We're still rejecting, um, still rejecting the, our unenlightened past. <laughs> so to say, you know, um, I, I say that totally uh, joking because it's, it's crazy to me to think that um, now it is, I, I used to believe this. It's crazy to think that we have it all figured out, you know, as modern humans, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but somehow part of the arrogance of modernity um, seems like. Another thing you mentioned that kind of ties back to your psychological training and is about, and relates to the psychedelic um, issue is, is around talking about it. And I've run across now a number of folks who either talk about it privately, but don't feel comfortable publicly speaking about it. Or I've, I've heard of many folks now um, who, who speak about it private or who talk about it privately, but say they couldn't speak about it in the context of a Buddhist um, situation. And these are especially monks and teachers, people that are in positions of authority. And it makes me really sad. And you said something directly to this point last time we spoke. You said that anything that's outside of awareness and that we hold outside of awareness, those are the things that actually determine our more unconscious behaviors because by definition, we're not conscious of them. Right. And you mentioned too recently doing a series, um, a teaching series at Inside LA on the four, you call them the four unmentionables <laughs> instead of the four <laughs> immeasurables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what were the unmentionables? What were the four? The four unmentionables, I mean, look, there's many more, but for the ones that we chose as sort of broad categories were um, sex, money, power. Oh, it's so interesting. Race. And race. I was going to say, I'm forgetting the hardest one, race. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was the hardest one. I feel like we did a beautiful, I feel like we did a beautiful job. I think it's accessible on the Inside LA website. As to not talking about it, you know, if people are currently experimenting, these are illegal substances. Number one, they're still illegal. And right. so there's a reason to be careful and a big reason to be careful. And then also, 
can be difficult for people who don't understand to discern what is, you know, using, like using drugs and alcohol for unwholesome, uh, take the edge off experience and numb yourself or self-medicate or just, you know, have yeah. fun or something. I don't want to make it sound like it's bad, but at the same time, that is not something that the Buddha encouraged. And there's precepts that are, you know, very specifically directions not to get intoxicated and not to, I think the language that I like is not, not to use substances that would induce heedlessness, you know, that make us careless or that make us oblivious to people around us or the impact of our behaviors or, you know, there's so many reasons not, not to get involved with intoxicants that if people are currently exploring, I can understand why they would be reticent to talk about it. I don't really understand why people wouldn't talk about past things that they may have done or interests that they had. Why? Do you know? Um, I mean, the, the impression I've got is that, you know, there's a fear that by exposing themselves, especially people that are in positions of authority, that they're going to, um, you know, risk the wrath of their communities, you know, that the communities around them, you know, have this idea that, um, that those things are, you know, absolute bads or absolute, absolutely disconnected from, from the purpose of Dharma practice. Um, and, and of course these people, the people that I've heard of, I'm not going to mention any names here, um, you know, that I, I think that's a legitimate concern. And yet it, uh, as you said, w with you know, holding things outside of awareness, it, it kind of, it prevents those unconscious behaviors that can be driven by, by that from being brought into consciousness and healed. And it also from, you know, from the legal standpoint, it prevents people from organizing and coordinating and really demanding that, that, you know, substances which are now dem being demonstrated to be safer than most other drugs and even can help support people with drug abuse, you know, that those substances should not be schedule one drugs. And it just makes, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And it makes it hard to approach the issue intelligently and brainstorm together. Cause I understand people are reticent and, and the more um, visible people are. Yes the more they feel they have to protect or lose or something, which is unfortunate because it's very difficult to legislate morality because right. we know this, you know, we know this. And, and, and one of the things that's been distressing to me in the past is that often teachers will sometimes go one, you know, either become almost fundamentalists in their um, attachment to the letter of the law of the precepts. Uh, or just get very nebulous and say, you know, it's all dependent on the moment and what arises in the moment. And, but that's not enough either, because if we don't have guidelines to help us, we can get intoxicated by what is arising in the moment in so many ways, like sexual energies yes. are so powerful and, yes. and greed can be so powerful and craving and so forth. It, it's really delicate. Yes. Um, but the larger question to me is, let's be humans together. Uh, let's not put each other on pedestals that, you know, 
the idealization of the teacher, for example. Well, you need to believe that somebody's further down the road than you are. If, why would you go study with them, right? You need to believe that, if, whether it's psychotherapy or spiritual practice, that your, your guide, your therapist, your teacher understands more about what's going on and can help you learn. But the idealization that happens especially if people set up in a sort of guru position. I mean, guru just means teacher in India, but here it's come to mean something much more powerful. Mm. And then people can't really be honest about their humanness so much. And that's one of the things I love so much about Ramdas, who is an extremely accomplished practitioner. And especially after sitting in that wheelchair for almost 20 years now in lots of different kinds of pain. and he always talks about his own struggles or lapses or foibles or flaws or whatever you want to call them. But, you know, he transmits this powerful radiance of love that, you know, everybody feels when they come into the field of that. And yet he's not afraid to talk about the other side of just who we are, all of us as human beings. And so I think I wish that for, I think it would be a greater service to the people who come to practice with us too, even though in some sense, and I don't know this, if it's more as a woman or a man, that this is true. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Even if in some sense, it's a loss of power to let yourself be seen in all your human glory and less glorious aspects and facets. Um, (laughs) It's, it reminds me of the story that Jack tells uh, about a meeting with Achan Cha where he was a new student and a feisty new student. And he, and I can really relate to that. He, he went up to Achan Cha and he was like, you know, I can't remember if it was like spitting tobacco, chewing tobacco or smoking. You know, so he had some, he had some habits that Jack disapproved of and didn't feel that his head of the monastery should have. And so he goes up and says, you know, what's up with this? And Ajahn Chah just looks at him and says, you know, if if I were perfect, then you'd think you have to be perfect too. <laughs> and I love that because I've been very level as a teacher and, and perhaps um, maybe, you know, sharing too much of that side of things. But I had the privilege of hearing Father Greg Boyle, who started Homeboy Industries, helping gang members. Uh, get out of that lifestyle and live a better life. And in Los Angeles, right? Yes, in Los Angeles. And he's a wonderful, wonderful man, Father Greg. And he has his homies come and teach with him. And one of them was getting kind of good at talking. And he said, You know, they call him G Dog. You know, G, I've discovered that if you sprinkle into your talks, some self-defecating stories. People relate, it's more relatable. People really relate to you more. And so Father Greg, with a quick comeback, said, no shit. But he, he meant self-deprecating stories. <laughs> I was going to say defecating. That's yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I see. I was like, wait. But he hadn't had like, the benefit of, you know, a great education. 
this dude. So he said self-deprecating and Father Greg mm. knew what he meant and made that joke. Yes. But back to the gender comment, I think when sometimes it may be that when men disclose their maybe, I don't know, their, whatever it is that doesn't fit in their image or their role, maybe they get a little more sympathy. If a woman does, it may be more of a loss of power. I don't know. That's a different speculation from our topic. But to come back to our topic, I really wish that teachers didn't have to feel like they have to present an image that doesn't include all their humanness. And I'm not talking about I mean, obviously we have private lives and I don't mean that everybody has to share and overshare everything and I don't either, but right. I'm just addressing that reticence or reluctance that, that you were mentioning and wishing that we all felt safe enough with each other, at least yes. that we could, could share what's deeply true for us. Yeah. Br- Brene Brown, you know, talks a lot about vulnerability in her research. Yeah. 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 And we, we ask our students to be vulnerable. And I don't think we should ask people to do things that we aren't doing ourselves. So part of, uh, yeah, can I just say I agree? No, we can, um, yeah, no just keep us focused because um, <laughs> I love to range far and wide in conversation. Yeah, no, I, I just spoke with Joan Halifax recently, and it was a similar kind of ranging, and I like that. I love that. Um, but we were talking last time, too, about, and it ties in with this whole conversation about people feeling um, maybe scared to share or unable to share, unwilling to share. Part of the reason that might also be true is that, um, particularly now, we're living in a time where having nuanced conversations about topics that are really have a strong charge to them, you know, from especially politics, um, you know, the recent Me Too, psychedelics, you know, all of these are topics where, you know, a lot of charge comes up for a lot of people and and, and they tie into people's, some of people's core identities, Um, that it's very hard to have a nuanced conversation, especially online, (laughs) especially in in social media contexts. Yes it's hard to be human because um, you know, the moment we share something that doesn't fit with one side or another's kind of stake in the ground, um, then it appears that we're on the other side of the issue and that we're the other. Um, and I've seen this you know, play out time and again, especially since Trump was elected Yeah, and since the campaign, I mean, the whole campaign itself, was, That's right. I mean, just fraught with that. Um, and, and so that, that seems to be a big part of, of why it's so hard to talk about these things in, in more human ways. I don't, and I really don't think that those technology platforms are built to help these kind of human conversations happen. Um, that is probably the understatement of the year, uh, Vince, <laughs> because um, I'm going to give another shout out. Uh, a man I met last year at Wisdom 2.0, and I talked to you about this too, um, named Tristan Harris. And he has a website. It was called timewellspent.io, and now it's called humanetech.com. But both URLs will take you to the same site. And, you know, for years, Tristan was a lone voice crying out in the wilderness. He had been an um, engineer at Google, and he was seeing how, you know, these best and brightest minds of the engineers and how they're working with neuroscientists to basically addict people 
to the technology because the more of people's attention you can grab and hold, it translates into more advertising dollars. This is a simplistic, quick um, point that I'm going to make because what the, so the algorithms are designed to hook you on more and more and more of what they know you like. And that's determined by your past click history, mostly, but by posts and things too. And you know, we, people worry about the future of artificial intelligence. It's already here. Yeah, of course. These algorithms are making billions of decisions every moment, and neither Facebook nor Google can control that anymore unless they drastically change their business model. But the point is that they create what are called filter bubbles, and those filter bubbles isolate us from each other and from each other's thoughts and views and opinions. And create these, um, we get, we, people can get very, very alienated from each other, which is what has happened because we aren't talking face to face. We aren't having tough conversations in the context of relationships where the relationships have more to them than the differences of opinion. You know, it's maybe you're. Yes. And this is how we're receiving our news and our information and our searches even. If you search for something on Google, you're going to get different websites than if I searched that same thing on Google. Mm -hmm. So people aren't really being exposed to each other in the same way, just to these sort of siloed um, segments of opinion. And it's really contributing to what you're talking about, the lack of safety in making ourselves fully known. Um, I mean, look at what happens to the women who've spoken out about their experiences with uh, Mr. Trump before he was president, and they get absolutely hateful male and social. I mean, it's just they have to be prepared for so much hatred uh, barreling towards them. And what we do about this is probably beyond the scope of our conversation. But I really feel if Roland Griffiths thinks that his psychedelic research can help the substances be used in responsible ways and maybe, I don't know, get legalized under certain circumstances, it's everything we do carries risks, right? Every time we walk out our front door, but it doesn't mean we can't do things, you know, uh, we have to uh, acknowledge our fears and feel them fully, but not let them stop us from moving forward and trying to bring more compassion and mutual understanding and respect for each other and each other's different views and where they come from into the world. I'm grateful for my training and experience of many, many years that I did as a psychotherapist because you dig under the surface of the most troubled and obnoxious or, uh, you know, behaviors. For example, I will just use children as an example. And always underneath, there is a vulnerability and a longing for love that's missing. Or for adults, always underneath, there is a story of causes and conditions of their previous incarnation as a child or as a teenager or that have led them to be the way they are. And it just brings so much compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the importance of understanding and how it can bring compassion. 
Um, so this is our job, whether we, however we're doing it, each of us, I feel in our lives is to, uh, bring more mutual respect and love into the world. And I want to just offer a bow to you, Vince, for taking on this topic, because I'm sure you've received, uh, criticisms and more from people. And it takes courage to, bring unmentionables into the open and have caring and respectful conversations about them. But if we don't, they will continue to drive unconscious behavior. And, and then it becomes almost like a vicious circle. Yeah. You use drugs, you get into trouble because you're hiding because, and then, well, they should be illegal. We shouldn't talk about this. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's certain sort of uh, self-fulfilling patterns that get, that get, that get into play there. Yeah. So I really, uh, I respect your courage to have these conversations and, and, and the more we listen to each other, the more we'll learn and grow in, um, mutual understanding and respect. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.